Ladies and gentlemen, uh, I, I hope uh, everyone's enjoying lunch uh, and uh, uh, sufficiently sated to, uh, to give a moment to our, uh, our lunch speaker. So can I ask everyone to, to quiet down for a moment? Um, uh, last year at, uh, at the surveillance conference, we were uh, privileged to have uh, Ward Churchill, who, who uh, uh, or, uh, during his address gave a, a line that has sort of stuck in my head since. He said uh, that in, in America, the surveillance state has always been uh, beta tested on communities of color. And I think anyone who's familiar with the history of uh, surveillance abuse in the United States understands uh, how uh, uh, chillingly true that is. Uh, like so many other injustices uh, in our, our history, uh, injustice of, of political abuse of surveillance has never been uh, colorblind. Um, we've uh, been reminded of that history uh, recently with a, a report leaked from DOJ, the Department of Justice in October um, summoning echoes of the notorious COINTELPRO uh, operation that targeted Martin Luther King and other civil rights leaders, uh, noting that the Bureau would be target that the, the department would be targeting what it referred to as black identity extremists. Um, this is a time uh, shortly after uh, white supremacists had, had uh, caused the death of an activist in Charlottesville. Um, one of the uh, most penetrating analyses of this uh, document and, and how dangerous it is came from uh, Professor Justin Hansford. You can find it uh, at the New York Times. There's a November 15th uh, op-ed called The FBI's Dangerous Crackdown on Black Identity Extremists. Um, Professor Hansford uh, is well uh, situated to address this important topic. He is uh, the uh, recently appointed director of the Thurgood Marshall Civil Rights Center here at Howard University in DC, uh, has previously been a, a fellow, uh, a Democracy Project fellow at Harvard, a visiting professor at, uh, at Georgetown, and uh, also an associate professor at St. Louis University. Uh, he's received a Fulbright Scholar Award and uh, also uh, has been very active in, uh, in Ferguson trying to advise uh, various movements for uh, reform and police treatment of minority communities. It is my very great privilege and honor to introduce Professor Justin Hansford. Uh, th thanks so much for that inter introduction. Um, and I am indeed well suited to discuss this uh, piece because uh, while I was in Ferguson, I, I uh, taught at St. Louis University for five years and I was one of the protesters in Ferguson, and I represented protesters. And I actually had a visit myself from the FBI uh, in my office, and as have a number of my friends. Uh, so uh, I have a, a particularly uh, closely vested interest in this topic, as you might imagine. And one thing that's interesting when you have, whenever you discuss current topics is that developments continue to transpire uh, even as I come to the podium today. The Deputy Attorney General is testifying and Representative Karen Bass only a few minutes ago asked about the BIE program and he doesn't seem to have much awareness of it. Neither has the FBI director um, admitted or stated on the record that he has had much of a 
uh, high level of involvement with it. Neither has Attorney General Sessions uh, stated that he knows much about it. So this, this mystery of this program that uh, at least three of the uh, most prominent officials uh, in our Justice Department have very little awareness of uh, should, all, should, should make us all very concerned about how a program of this magnitude can be instituted um, without the seeming uh, approval at the top levels of our intelligence uh, mechanism. But uh, in my, my short talk today, uh, I wanted to speak a little bit about the history of surveillance and how, in particular, during times when national security is threatened, again and again, we find that civil liberties are sacrificed, in particular, civil liberties of people of color. And uh, there's a, a pattern. There's a pattern to this. And we're seeing the pattern, unfortunately, unfold again today. And it's up to us and the people in this room who are interested in questions of surveillance to determine how we are going to stop this and how we can perhaps use technology and the law to do so. Uh, so many of you are familiar with the Black Identity Extremists report, which came out this past August. Uh, in that report, it was mentioned that uh, members of uh, a group uh, that few of us have ever heard of, uh, a black identity extremist group, were perhaps in preparation to conduct violent attacks against law enforcement. Now, I don't have to tell you that any report which su suggests that people are going to attack law enforcement officers is a report which opens the door for the highest levels of surveillance of those individuals, uh, for the use of perhaps violence against those individuals themselves. And so it would seem that we would be inclined to be very careful before we identify anyone as a member of such a group. Um, but the term black identity extremists throughout the black community in particular, but throughout the country, uh, has been seen as a little bit vague. Uh, would you think that's a vague term? Uh, anyone who uh, identifies as black in an extreme way, I don't know, I'm not sure exactly what that would mean. Maybe they're, they're wearing afros, uh, daishikis, uh, maybe they use ebonics, maybe they listen to a certain type of music. Now, it, to, to be clear in the report, they go to great lengths to say that it's not simply a person's cultural presentation which would put them in this category. Uh, these extremists are also people who they have identified are likely to, to commit violent attacks. But I think in the next panel, you're going to be investigating this entire project of trying to predict, predictive policing, trying to predict what people will do in the future. And the possibility that people who have never been violent in the past can be predicted to be violent in the future is something that we need to deeply interrogate before we move forward and use resources and surveillance mechanisms and possibly uh, tools of violence against those individuals. Uh, but this, this, this uh, BIE report, of course, uh, was released not in isolation, but it was released in the context of a long tradition 
of sacrificing the civil liberties of citizens on the basis of national security. And uh, so I want to talk a little bit about that history before I uh, posit some questions, and hopefully we can engage in a discussion about the, the chance that this could be a reversal of progress that we've made on the questions of surveillance. So we know that uh, the surveillance of people of color in particular in the United States happened immediately upon colonization. We know that Native Americans were surveilled. There was mapping of people uh, based on their tribal identities and their habits and their customs were closely watched by early colonists before they engaged in uh, aggressive interactions in war against Native Americans. We know that there was surveillance of people who were enslaved uh, because of the constant ongoing fear of slave uprisings. We know that there was surveillance uh, as you move through the 19th century to the early 20th century, there was surveillance of uh, activists, uh, not just activists who were trying to uh, in integrate a class analysis into American society, the, the Red Scare of 1919, but we know that there was surveillance of uh, racial justice activists like Marcus Garvey, the first uh, black FBI agent. Uh, James Wormley Jones was hired to infiltrate Marcus Garvey's organization in the 1920s. This is when J. Edgar Hoover, who uh, entered the FBI um, in those years, got his start in his long-running project to, to target a quote-unquote black messiah. And in that uh, project, they surveilled Marcus Garvey to such an extent with, their, with the infiltration that there are today 10 volumes of Marcus Garvey papers transcribed by FBI agents, making Marcus Garvey perhaps the most widely uh, recorded uh, civil rights activist of the 20th century based almost purely on the surveillance that took place as early as the 1920s. Uh, we can go and uh, talk about the surveillance of Paul Robeson in the 1940s. Um, we've, we, of course, we had um, another Red Scare in the 1950s, which would eventually lead to COINTELPRO, which is the, uh, perhaps the preeminent surveillance project of the 20th century, um, and one that continues to be a black eye uh, for the FBI. But again, I want to make this point. Again, again, we see over and over, whether it's during the period of enslavement, whether it's during the, the uh, period of uh, wars with Native Americans and Manifest Destiny, whether it's during the period of um, the Red Scare in 1919, whether it's the communist scares of the, the 1950s and 60s, again and again, national security is used as a justification for surveillance. So how do we begin to grapple with this, this uh, use of fear to justify surveillance that we normally would not, would not agree to. This use of the fear of security, the fear for your own, your own safety, and in particular in times of war, the panic that is created, uh, which allows for surveillance to take place. Um, and the COINTEL project is a particularly uh, virulent one. Uh, we know that Martin Luther King himself was the victim of a, a COMFIL, so J. Edgar Hoover said that uh, he had 
found some communist influence in Dr. King's um, organization, and on those grounds justified the surveillance of Dr. King. But we know that uh, this went beyond simply the fear of communist influence. Um, I want to take a second and read to you uh, a short excerpt of the letter that was sent to Dr. King. Some of you have may, have, may have already heard this, but we know that the FBI at the time under J. Edgar Hoover was not simply in, interested in trying to eliminate um, uh, communist influence. Uh, the, the term he used was that he thought that, that Dr. King was seeing red. <laughs> so he wasn't just, wasn't just concerned about people seeing red. He wanted to eliminate the possibility for a racial justice movement to be successful. Here's the quote he said of the, from the letter sent to Dr. King only a few weeks before he was to receive his Nobel Peace Prize. It says, quote, Dr. King, like all frauds, your end is approaching. The American public, the church organizations that you have been helping will know you for what you are, an evil, abnormal beast. So will others who have backed you. You are done, King. There's only one thing left for you to do. You know what it is. There's but one way out for you. You better take it before your filthy, abnormal, fraudulent self is bared to the nation. And, and uh, Dr. King's interpretation of this letter was an encouragement for him to commit suicide uh, before tapes showing that he um, engaged in extramarital relations were released to the public. So uh, we know that uh, Dr. King was harassed in a way that we should all be ashamed of based on the fear of the communist influence. And of course, we know that this went beyond uh, Dr. King to include um, racial justice advocates of all uh, uh, stripes in all, all different areas. Uh, we know that there was a documented infiltration of a group called the Brown Berets that worked for uh, Chicano rights um, during a a speech by Ronald Reagan at the Biltmore um, Hotel in the early 1970s. A fire was started in the hotel, and uh, a number of the activists were charged with arson and faced life in prison, and ultimately they would be completely exonerated um, after evidence suggested that it was actually an infiltrator, uh, Fernando Sumaya from the FBI, who perhaps helped to start those fires. Uh, we know that the American Indian movement was infiltrated um, by uh, Douglas Durham. This was all documented in uh, hearings, um, also an agent. And uh, these agent provocateurs, such as Durham, had wrongly accused other Native American activists of being agents themselves, resulting in one young lady being murdered, um, one Native American young lady being murdered during the process. Um, and so we can go on and on with the, the different ways that this has had a horrific effect on movements. And of course, most recently, we've seen the question of surveillance raised in, on the issue of uh, the war on terror today. Um, we know that Muslims have been surveilled um, all over the country, not based on their ideology per se, but based on their potential for quote-unquote radicalization, sometimes conflated with their ability to engage in their First Amendment right to practice the freedom of religion. We saw this uh, issue raised in a case uh, which took place uh, recently 
called Hassan versus City of New York, which went, which went to the Third Circuit, uh, United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. Uh, in this case, uh, it was found that the NYPD um, had engaged in surveillance of Muslim Americans based purely on uh, indicators such as who was wearing the longest beard and how often people uh, were going to the mosque. And so uh, a lawsuit was brought on the grounds of the Equal Protection Clause. And interestingly enough, the plaintiffs have been successful. The judge um, the, on the Third Circuit found that this was an equal protection violation. And it, it raises the question, which I, I hope to explore perhaps in future scholarship, that the Black Identity Extremist Program and other programs that purport to use identity as a grounds for surveillance violate the Equal Protection Clause and raise constitutional issues that perhaps the courts can solve. Um, so we're not going to leave these, these problems unaddressed, and uh, we're not going to fail to explore uh, possible avenues in the court system um, if they are available to us. Uh, so uh, all of these issues uh, paint a, a pretty bleak picture <laughs> on the question of surveillance. Um, but, but some of the things that I think are, uh, are most hopeful is that there is the possibility of innovation that can perhaps provide some measure of defense on these questions. I know from on my personal behalf, I've begun using Signal, which is an app that you can download on your phone, which will allow you to engage in, in encrypted text messaging. Um, my email, um, um, as, as um, Cato Institute knows, goes through ProtonMail. It doesn't go through Gmail as often because ProtonMail also is a Swedish-based company which offers uh, uh, more protection than regular email does. And so we're, we're trying, we're trying our best to provide uh, some sort of um, defense against all of these threats to our civil liberties. But I, I wanted to make sure that we remember that all of these issues are issues that ultimately are ones that uh, speak to the core nature of our society. There's a quote by uh, Benjamin Franklin that uh, says that those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. And so even the founding fathers of the nation have recognized that this is a Faustian bargain that we, we, that we will lose in the end if we indeed allow ourselves to become victimized by these civil liberties. And in particular, if you look at something like the Black Identity Extremists Project, I don't, I don't see where the limit is. I don't see why other movements, uh, whether it is uh, the women's rights movement, whether it is um, movements against uh, DACA or Muslim bans or um, DAPL or whatever movement uh, might be uh, out there causing a threat, I don't see why you can't uh, try to concoct mysterious organizations and mysterious labels to justify surveillance of those um, organizations and movements as well. So there's no reason to believe that this will stop on the question of black identity extremists. So it's up to all of us to stand up for the civil liberties and for civil rights and for the United States Constitution. And I'm hoping that this conference and the work that you're doing will continue to, to make a difference. So thanks so much.
And so I, I know that there's a microphone out here, so I wanted to hear from folks here. To, to be honest, I, this is my first time speaking at Cato. This is not my normal audience. Uh, so I really wanted to hear your thoughts on these questions. And um, so the, the floor is open. If anybody has any questions or comments or anything to add, I'd love to hear it. Yes, this gentleman right here. Okay. Thank you. Um, very interesting to hear your talk. Um, what is your current work that you're doing at Thurgood Marshall and, and uh, at Howard? So um, this is a new, so first of all, I'm a law professor, so I'll be teaching a clinic on civil and human rights. And this, this new um, uh, center hasn't opened yet. So we're still in the process of determining exactly what will be the, the um, agenda. And I'm trying to, before we open it, I'm trying to get as much feedback as I can from the community to make sure that it's a process that involves everyone. But I can guarantee that it's going to involve these types of issues. For example, in the clinic that I'll be running, we'll be, we'll be submitting FOIA requests um, because we know that a number of activists have been surveilled. Some of them have been surveilled in such a way as to call, cause them great uh, personal fear for their safety, to interfere, it interferes with their work. And so we're going to be filing some FOIA requests, which we know are going to be challenged. And so we know that there will be a need for litigation to support that. And so that's, that's one aspect of the surveillance state that, I, that I'm sure that will be challenging once the center opens. But the, the goal is really to go around the country. We're at Howard University, which is, uh, in my view, the mecca for um, historically black colleges and universities. So we have a constituency that is national. We have a national constituency. And so in Chicago, uh, we know there are groups like the Black Youth Project doing, doing great work, the Dream Defenders in Florida. Um, you've got uh, Black Lives Matters, which has a great base in Los Angeles. Um, of course, I'm from St. Louis, so there are people in Ferguson there. So all these people are our constituents. And so we're trying to do work that forwards the, the activism of the, especially the young people and the people who are newly engaged in civil rights work. And so what can we do as lawyers and as a legal institution, as a law school, to help those young people? That's the question I'm trying to ask in the work. Yes, gentlemen right here. Oh, you can be next. It seems like if I were a black man, I would be in favor of more surveillance and not less. And I would consider that a protection. In other words, if I'm downtown and a riot breaks out and there's a camera there, it would show that I was not participating in that riot. If I got pulled over by a policeman and he had a body cam and it showed that I was yes sir, no sir type of thing, it would protect me more than not being surveilled. All right. Sure, you want to add something? You, you said that were you um, a black man, this is the perspective you, you might hold. Well, that was my question. You are a white man. So how, are you, do you feel good about that surveillance, the, the same surveillance you just described for the same reasons? Oh. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's, it's, there's a, it's, it's an ongoing question as to, you know, there's always the argument, well, uh, if you're not doing anything wrong, uh, why are you upset about surveillance? And that, that's, that's sort, of a, sort of the thing that I think that the conference 
um, is about. Um, are we okay with surveilling or surveillance even if we, we aren't doing, engaged in any wrongdoing? So, you know, another metaphor that you can use um, is uh, when you're in your, inside your home, would you be okay with uh, your home being like this, with glass windows all around and people being able to look into your home while you're sitting around watching television, while you're with your children? Would you be okay with uh, a big brother state watching your every move? Even, even if you're a completely virtuous citizen uh, who would never do anything wrong, are you, are you comfortable with having that sort of exposure? And so to me, when you're talking about the issue of privacy rights, um, that's, that's always the question. The question is not uh, whether your individual conduct will be judged um, to be immoral or illegal. The question is, are you okay giving that power of knowledge and surveillance to the United States government? Regardless of who's in the administration, are you okay with people always being able to watch you? And that's something we have to answer as a society. I know you had a question, sir. Can I just, I just sort of oh. supplement that uh, okay. and ask specifically about uh, police body cameras? Because we know that's, that's one uh, form of surveillance of a sort that's been touted as a way of trying to reduce uh, police brutality, try and, and uh, uh, hold police accountable for, uh, for misconduct, um, and you know, actually show if, if whether, for example, someone who they claimed was resisting and who ended up injured was resisting. Um, on the other hand, it does, of course, have the side effect of increasing the extent to which people in heavily policed communities end up being video recorded. Uh, I was curious if you had any particular thoughts about that trade-off. I'm completely against body cameras. And I, I, I came out against that. I wrote an article in the Washington Post about that a couple years ago. I thought it was a, uh, to be honest, I thought it was a farce from the first, first time I heard about it. Because the, what you see is that, and this, is, this has been borne out by the data, the, the footage from the body cameras are much more likely to be used to harm citizens than to help citizens. In other words, this idea that people being, if the, if the, if the camera is rolling, the police officers will be less likely to engage in any violation of people's Fourth Amendment rights or constitutional rights, hasn't been borne out because we see so few convictions because of the legal standards. But what has been borne out is that uh, people who are being videotaped are going to be, uh, are being surveilled, number one. Number two, that evidence will be used against them in court. Um, and uh, so that can include for minor violations that, you know, that, you know there's a, there are a lot of things that happen in our country that are illegal. I can go out side today and jaywalk trying to get to my Uber. And you know, there's a, as a society, we have to determine how much of this are we gonna really try to enforce? How many people do we want to put in jail? Today, we jail more people than any society has ever jailed in history. Um, we have, I think, uh, over 20% of the world's jail population with about 5% of the world's population. Uh, so are we okay with trying to enhance powers of criminalization through the use of these cameras. I'm not okay with it. And I, I think the trade-off is a horrible trade-off. You're paying you know, millions of dollars for these cameras. That money could be going to an investment into communities so that we can get homeless shelters for people who are homeless in the street in this cold, who might commit uh, petty robbery, 
when instead, if they had a shelter, they'd be safe and they'd be trying to get their lives back on track. You could be creating uh, centers to fight against drug addiction, whether it's opioid addiction or the addictions we have around the country, instead of spending this money on cameras that are high tech and that sometimes get turned off. I can go on and on on this question. As you can see, I'm, I'm highly in opposition to body cameras. Yes. I, sir, I know this, this gentleman was going to ask a question, then you'll be, you'll be next, sir, who's waving in the, in the back. Yep. Oh, hi. Yes, I've been watching the ratcheting up, I think we've all seen it, ratcheting up of the Cold War with Russia recently, mm -hmm. the last few years, and now we have this Russiagate, um, which I consider to be evidence-free hysteria. Some people might have different, different views on that. But as part of that, I've heard that the claims that Black Lives Matter has somehow been stirred up by the Russians. And given the history, and th these actual claims, of it, including by my own senator, Mark Warner, is my mm. understanding, which I found really quite appalling, given the history of Martin Luther King's, you know, COINTEL Pro and all that, yeah. that you've, so I'm, is that a concern to you that somehow, um, the, as part of this new Cold War and some kind of association between Russiagate or Russians and Black Lives Matter, that that could increase um, improper surveillance? Well, I think you, you make the point. I think you make the point in, in the sense that it is uh, it's a cycle. And um, we're seeing the dangers that we're seeing history repeat itself. And um, I made this comment in a, another context um, where on these issues of racial justice, we're seeing that where we thought there was some sort of uh, linear progress narrative that was happening. It's, yeah, the arc of just, justice, um, we're seeing a cyclical process. So you could look at history and say, well, after the end of enslavement, we had reconstruction, we had our first black senators and congresspeople elected, uh, dozens of congresspeople, uh, dozens of black congresspeople elected, and you know, it seemed like there was a lot of progress, but then we had the creation after that of Jim Crow and um, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. Then we had uh, Martin Luther King, we had this great uh, civil rights movement that brought us um, you know, the Civil Rights Acts and we had a huge step forward and it seemed like again we were making this progress and then we had mass incarceration, we had crack cocaine, uh, then we take these steps backwards. And so you could argue that based on that cycle after having elected the first black president, it shouldn't be a surprise that you have the first anti-black president in a long time, or, or that we have these backward steps again. And it, you start to see history not in terms of a linear progression movement, but in terms of a cyclical movement. And again, you know, we could see once, just like we saw during the, the Garvey period or during the period when Martin Luther King was an activist, we see again this uh, Russian <laughs> um, uh, conspiracy theory philosophy used to justify surveillance, and that's a danger. I know a gentleman back here had a, had a question. My, na <clears throat> my name is Yaya Fanusi with the United States of Africa 2017 Project Task Force. It is very interesting when you're dealing with such situation from an academic position of distant. You remember Ron Karanga? Yeah, Ronald, Ron Karinga. Yes. Mm -hmm. Us organization. I was yep. a member of the Black Panthers Party on the ground in California and Oregon. I carry my nine millimeter. You remember when they assassinated two of our comrades in Campbell Hall in UCLA mm -hmm. because of this quarantine? 
FBI doing the thing. And also Fred and Hampton also okay, was another let person. To, let me get to Colin Karenga. If Ron Karenga walk in here now, the founder of Kwanzaa, if he walks in India now, he could walk in here because of what I did. I was the one who stopped the Black Panthers Party assassin who want to, as a, as a retaliation, wanted to assassinate mm. him. And I said, no, you can't do it. It's the FBI and CIA putting us against each other. So it's not something simple like this is just a government bureaucratic action. It has very serious repercussion on people's lives. I'm still mad that, I'm a, that FBI did that to my two comrades. Yeah, thanks, thanks for telling, t talking about that. And I do, do want to raise up that issue because we've, we've seen within the Black Lives Matter movement, which I consider myself a, to be a part of, uh, some harsh, harsh uh, uh, internal rivalries. And uh, to this time, we haven't seen things become violent between groups. Um, but we have seen uh, a few activists um, Go, go at each other very virulently, and that's the fear. We saw during the 1970s that part of the COINTELPRO program was to draft fake letters to different activists, uh, incriminating each other, accusing each other of being spies, insulting each other, and so it, was very, it would be very easy today if we allowed this uh, program to go forward for someone to draft a fake letter from uh, or a fake email from one activist to another and cause internal uh, aggression that could potentially end up in the in, in the loss of life. So again, this is this is a huge crisis, and our, our one of our greatest fears is not just about uh, being in the glass house or whether or not you know if we are virtuous enough should we be okay with the surveillance. The actions can can result in people's lives being lost. Yeah, there's the LSE number on this side. Uh, let me start here. Yep. Yes. Um, my name is Les Jamison uh, with an organization called HR14.org. We are currently advocating everybody watch the film A Good American, okay. explaining the testimonies of NSA whistleblowers and the prior to 9-11 and since, which explains an awful lot of, uh, of uh, the underlying cause for the conversations we're having here today. And uh, <clears throat> I'm, I was glad to hear you lay out a, a great history of COINTELPRO. Uh, and I think so much necessary, very necessary to look at the, all the current and recent uh, manifestations such as with uh, Occupy Wall Street, mm -hmm. right? Uh, there's so many stories there of um, surveillance happening, arrests, false arrests, and, and so forth, and then also <clears throat> the Dakota Pipeline with uh, indigenous Americans being arrested and the ACLU having to be brought in to, uh, um, to, to, to defend them. So my question is, based on your research and legal background, are there sufficient resources or insufficient resources to handle the level of abuses happening in terms of uh, the uh, <clears throat> various intelligence agencies uh, committing violations of human rights? Great question. So the resources have been completely insufficient. And to be honest, it's been a great source of uh, uh, disappointment for me because as a lawyer who is um, sympathetic to many of these movements, uh, many activists have come to me and asked for help. Uh, and they've come to others 
of us lawyers were supposed to be so, so uh, helpful and ask for help, and our hands have been tied. We haven't found uh, any way to effectively help people. We've, we've, we've uh, explained to people what their rights are, but in the moment, this is not of much help. Um, you know, you have paranoia, um, you, know, we, you know, and sometimes the claims are well-founded. You have witnesses to people being followed, to you know, people um, hearing that their lines are tapped on their cell phone. To, you know, we've had some of these things documented in the press. We've had FOIA requests that have confirmed suspicions. And pretty much our, our best tool so, for, so far has been the FOIA request. I can't, I had, the, my hope lies in Hassan versus New York City because it seems to lower the, the standard for legal challenges uh, to surveillance from what we assumed it was um, over the, the, the course of the past couple of years. It's a Third Circuit case that I think uh, bodes well for legal challenges. But up until Hassan, uh, we've been very, of very little help to groups. Um, and again, we've, we've got documented cases of infiltration in the DAPL, Dakota Access Pipe, Pipeline Project. We've got document, documented cases of all these different tools being used, um, infiltration, harassment arrests. Um, I was um, in Ferguson when the police created a five-second um, no standing still rule in Ferguson. So they allowed you to protest, but then they said, well, you have to keep walking while you protest. And if you stand still for five seconds, you're going to get arrested. And so that, that was used in Ferguson very effectively by the Ferguson police. Um, and they used it for a number of days, basically until people got tired out. I think one of the least known aspects of the Ferguson protests is that one of the reasons it stopped is because this tactic was used that was completely unconstitutional, that tired out the protesters so they, they, they couldn't stand still while walking. They had to always continue to move. Older people were involved. They got tired out. They went home. We later challenged it in uh, the federal district court, and the ACLU brought the case. Um, and they were successful. They, the, the action was found to be unconstitutional. There's an opinion in the federal district, came out of the federal district court by Judge Perry that, um, um, that bans that action. But it was too late. You bring a lawsuit, by the time you litigate the lawsuit, everybody's already tired and they went home. So that's a, that's a harassment, arrest, a threat of arrest. All these things have been used very effectively for these movements contemporaneously. Let's see a number of hands. Yep, right here. I have a quick comment and then a question. I always felt Martin Luther King was killed because he organized the poor. That's an enormous threat to the status quo. Um, my question is, I'm alarmed um, in the past five years by how many jobs are requiring background checks that have nothing to do with the responsibilities or qualifications of the jobs, and that employers can cavalierly access such intimate information about workers. And I don't hear anyone talking about it, and the younger generation seems somewhat acceptance, accepting of it, and um, I, I just you know, find it alarming, and I'm not sure how it can be stopped, whether a state can start legislating to protect the workers from such intrusive 
practices. I'm accustomed to confidentiality agreements, but that's very different from having to agree to a background check. And I would say three out of four jobs today are just cavalierly applying background checks in order to get a job. And uh, do you have any suggestions for how a legislature might protect workers or what other options there might be? I'd be in favor of that for sure. I know we there was a movement called Ban the Box uh, that uh, spoke to that issue, and I think it was supported by uh, President Obama's administration on the administrative level. Uh, on the legislative level, um, I'm not sure what's happening nationally, if anything, on that issue. But I definitely support that in terms of um, the the privacy of the employee and the potential employee being violated. We also see that in the, in the context of people, people's social media. So people's social media has been uh, canvassed, um, even when they're not in a public position. And so I think there's, there's also the potential for abuse in that area as well. I know there's some other questions here. I, I want to make sure everybody got a chance to ask theirs. Yep. Thank you. Uh, hi, <clears throat> excuse me. Hi, Carl Golovin, uh, domain reference and idealiveson.net. And when you mentioned this uh, no standing still rule in Ferguson, it just reminded me of something I kind of stumbled across a couple of years ago, trying to uh, encourage people to peaceably assemble in petition for redress of grievances concerning the Kennedy assassination records. The idea that uh, we've all gotten persuaded that somehow we should self-identify as protesting, demonstrating, or marching but you don't find the words protest, demonstrate, or march protected in the Constitution, mm. per se. You know, but the Constitution does, does say that no law can be created to preclude peaceably assembling in petition for redress of grievances. Right. So uh, something maybe we can all bear in mind. And actually, June 10th of this year, the anniversary of Kennedy's peace speech, I like to think that 100,000 people would peaceably assemble on the vast public terraces of the Kennedy Center. We've forgotten the power of just showing up. You don't have to have a sign or protest or demonstrate or march. Just if everyone shows up, Washington will be aware of it. All right. I think it speaks for itself. Yep. Thank you. Uh, hi, Aaron Barnes from the Cato Institute. Uh, thank you so much for coming today and speaking with us. Um, I just wanted to get your take on kind of the confluence between surveillance on the one hand and overcriminalization on the other and how they kind of work together. So, I mean, we're probably all committing, uh, technically committing crimes two or three times a day unwittingly, um, but the surveillance allows uh, the government or the police to kind of uh, target certain individuals and arbitrarily enforce the laws and so forth. So just anything you could say to speak to that, I'd certainly appreciate it. Definitely. Well, there, there are books, many books about that question. Uh, we, we can say, for, for example, in Ferguson, if you read the Ferguson report, you'll see how uh, this idea that you can have more warrants for arrest for, tra for traffic violation and minor uh, violations like failing to cut your grass and keeping your grass at a certain level um, more of those uh, arrest warrants than people in the city of Ferguson, where people are being constantly surveilled. So in order to, to be able to target people for these minor violations, you have to be always watching. And so it's, it, there's, a, there's a deep connection between mass incarceration, over-criminalization, and surveillance. 
Um, because in other, on the other side of town, if you go to Clayton, these are other suburbs of St. Louis that are well-to-do, uh, they also have tall grass. <laughs> they also uh, don't st stop long enough for the stop signs, but they're not being surveilled, and um, they're not going to be arrested for those minor violations. And, you know, there's, there's, there's so much that goes into that. You can talk about the use of these citizens as ATM machines, which is the term that uh, Eric Holder used to describe the way Ferguson police uh, were using the citizens of Ferguson. And also, I, I can attest to the shame of, you know, people are in jail, people are seen as criminals. Um, you know, they, they allowed their grass to grow, to grow to a certain length, and now they are um, in these horrible conditions in the jail, and they've got to explain that to their employer. People have lost their employment. They've got to explain it to their children. Um, you know, that they're in jail for this certain amount of time and they're trying to, trying to raise children to be good citizens and they themselves are now in jail. So, you know, there are so many different ramifications of how that works. One thing that I've always, I've always said, I don't think that, especially for traffic violations, I don't know why we use our police for uh, traffic violations. If, if, if somebody runs a stop sign, with, tech, with our technology today, the police can use their cameras on their cars and just take a picture of the license plate and mail in the ticket. Why do they need to stop the person, approach the car with a gun? We saw that happen with Sandra Bland. We saw that happen with so many people where people have been killed based on these interactions that didn't even need to take place. Um, you know, if, you know, the surveillance is, is something that I oppose overall, especially for these minor violations. But if you do have technology, use that to limit the interaction between the police and the citizen so we'll have less violence. Um, so th I think there's a connection between all this, mass incarceration, uh, the people being killed by police, we're seeing these videos, and the surveillance. And then we got five minutes left, so I wanna make sure everybody has their question answered. Gentleman right there, yep. Yeah, hi, um, I'm Gus Alzona, an immigrant from the Philippines, and my family I, we've been around this town since 1955. We've seen administrations come and go. We've lived through the whole, everything that happened around here. Well, basically, um, and, and I will get to the question, I, I do support body cameras on the cops, and, and, and let me explain, but, but they are required to keep them on at all times. But let me uh, say one thing here. I actually now, you know, I used to actually have a little bit more fear of government Etc. in the past, but now, given the money, the dark money in politics, foreign intervention, billions of dollars, globalization, blah, 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 and all that, and the technology tools, you know, quite frankly, I mean, privacy as we used to know it around this town, is gone. Unless you're ready to give up your cell phones, your uh, computers, or t totally go off the grid like some people have gone and disappear somewhere out there, you know, there's still a lot of places to disappear in this country and be safe. But that being said, um, so, so how would you try to balance, or at least try to balance that when actually, at least in my opinion, I, I would really rather have somebody in the government, at least the government workers, contracts are supposed to abide by the Constitution versus a private interest or foreign interest dumping money into this country. So, you know, how would you sort of balance that to make sure our rights are preserved, our constitutional rights are preserved, when these very well-financed foreign interests are 
have really uh, subverted a lot of our processes here? Mm. I know it's a heavy question, but right. anyway. <laughs> well, if you have the answer, go for it. I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know, you know, I, I, um, I believe that um, the, the issue of whether or not foreign investment has allowed some of these mechanisms to be in the hands of people who uh, don't adhere to our, our framework of civil liberties, I'm, I'm not convinced that our government workers, you know, writ large, have been successfully adhering to those strictures. I, I don't know who's holding them accountable today. I see, again, in these hearings that are happening even this very hour as I'm up here, we're having hearings where people are just, uh, for some reason, unaware <laughs> of uh, a program as, as uh, challenging and as, as um, corrosive as the, the Black Identity Extremist Program. People in the Attorney General's office, in the, the, the actual uh, Attorney General himself and FBI director have all said that they just, you know, just confounds them. So who, who's, who's keeping the shop? You know, who's holding people's feet to the fire in terms of American um, actors who are supposedly adhering to constitutional guidelines? I don't know, because people are able to, to go off and create black identity extremist dreams, <laughs> and nobody's accountable. So, so we don't even know who the author of this report is. After three, four hearings, after, you know, I think the CBC had a hearing um, or had a meeting with some folks. You know, we've had op-eds written and all this, all this has happened and we still don't have that, that level of accountability. We don't know if anyone's been fired and we don't know if the program is gonna be stopped. So, so I, but I know we're running low on time. So does anybody else have any questions? One more question here at the, at the end, yep. Hi. Uh, I was wondering if you think that the response to recent in seemingly increasingly credible allegations that National Security Interception Authority was used against a political campaign and unmasking may have been used based on unreliable information in order to spy on a campaign, whether you think the response to that from normal advocates of personal privacy and so on has been somewhat muted because the victims on that case were on the conservative end of the scale rather than the uh, progressive end of the scale? That's a, that's a good question. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't know, I haven't followed people, I, I haven't followed the responses of the, uh, the advocacy community on that issue. I, I have to admit, for me, as someone who's visited by the FBI myself, I am myself concerned about any sort of overreach and I've been mostly concerned with the things that might affect me <laughs> first. And um, you know, those other questions are also very much uh, worth looking into. So I support responding to any sort of uh, actions by the government that are overreaching, regardless of the political party. All right. Thank you. Thank you.